Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. On this week's show, we continue a few discussions that we've had over recent weeks. First, we have another candidate for Congress joining the podcast. Nabila Islam is running for Congress in the 7th Congressional District, and Nabila is a community organizer who's been active in Georgia and progressive politics for quite some time now. She's also the first candidate that I've talked to here in Georgia who is running on Medicare for All. So we get into a little bit about her views on bolder, progressive approaches to policy. Then Matthew Cavanaugh joins the podcast. Matthew is a criminal defense attorney from Gainesville, and he recently wrote a piece in All on Georgia, arguing that the new abortion ban does not change existing criminal law in a way that would allow for the prosecution of women. Now, if you missed our recent episode with State Senator Jen Jordan, she joined the podcast a couple weeks ago to argue the other side of this issue. She argued that, yes, the law does allow for the prosecution of women. So if you missed that one, scroll up in your feeds and check that one out, and then uh, be sure to to uh, tune in through the end of our show today to hear Matthew's view. Um, Because this has become such an important conversation in our politics, we wanted to get a diverse range of views on the podcast to discuss this. But before we get to those interviews, let's check in on some news here. So first, there's another challenge to aspects of Georgia's voting system that is going to be allowed to move forward in the courts. This week, a federal judge rejected the state's motion to dismiss a case filed by Fair Fight Action and other groups allied with Stacey Abrams. And as the AJC reported earlier this week, this lawsuit is challenging a myriad of policies on voting in our state, including voter registration purges, absentee ballot cancellations, precinct closures, and potential voting machine tampering. The state attempted to have this case dismissed by arguing that the election machines law that was passed in this last legislative session, that the passage of that law makes this case moot. And you may remember that this is the same argument that the state used in the other voting machine case that is before Judge Totenberg. But like in that case, the judge in this case decided that that was not a good enough reason to dismiss this case. So now we are going to have two challenges moving forward in the courts uh, that are challenging the state's systems of voting. Also this week, disaster relief is still not done in the U.S. Congress. I'm recording this news break on Friday morning, May 31st, and and today marks 233 days since Hurricane Michael made landfall. On Thursday, another member of the House Freedom Caucus stopped unanimous passage of the disaster relief bill that recently passed the Senate. And now on three different occasions uh, this week, in the end of last week, the House has tried to pass this bill without a roll call vote. The House is trying to do it this way because they left town before the Senate came to a deal when everyone knew that a deadline for a congressional recess was coming up around Memorial Day. Now the House is coming back into session next week, and this bill is going to pass easily once we have a roll call vote on this issue. So really, this is a bill that's only being delayed by a few members who view making a political point in Washington as more important than helping out the survivors of hurricanes, floods, wildfires, and other disasters in states across the country. So that's kind of the big news items for this week. Let me now turn it over to my conversation with Nabila Islam. She is running for Congress in Georgia's 7th Congressional District. All right, so we're now joined by Nabila Islam, a political organizer, and she is also a candidate for the 7th Congressional District. Uh, Nabila, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. How about we just start with the basics here, and and can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to jump into this race for Congress? Absolutely. Uh, Well, 
I'm first off, I'll start with uh, I'm the daughter of working class immigrants who came to this country around 40 years ago uh, from Bangladesh. Both my parents are survivors of a political genocide, and they actually came to Georgia seeking the American dream. Uh, I grew up in Norcross and Lawrenceville, and I've lived the vast majority of my life in this district. I'm a proud Central Glen High School graduate, uh, go Black Knights, and my first jobs are working at the local Ingalls here in the Walmart right off the Sugarloaf Parkway. I put myself through college at Georgia State University working at a luggage store in Peachtree Corners. And growing up in this district, I recognize that things are not as they should be, especially for people like myself and many people in the district. And I've recognized that there are inequalities at every level for a long time. You know, many people have been energized to take action after Trump got elected, and I welcomed them to the fight. Now, I've been working for a better half of a decade to correct course. And it's been my life's work uh, to elect good Democrat, Democratic leaders to office. Uh, my first job in Democratic politics was canvassing for Representative Pedro Marine uh, when Republicans tried to gerrymander the only Latino Democrat at the time from the Georgia legislature. I, I managed a successful challenger campaign against an entrenched at-large city councilman in Atlanta. Uh, I worked for Jason Carter on his gubernatorial campaign uh, when he was the only gubernatorial candidate in the South to campaign on Medicaid expansion. Uh, I served as a senior staffer on Secretary Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. And most recently, I oversaw uh, the South 13 states at the DNC to help rebuild the National Party where we raised millions of dollars to send back down to the South to help elect Democrats up and down the ballot. And it was really this last diverse delegation that inspired me to step up and run. It really showed me that my identity wasn't a handicap and that I should be encouraged to run and give this majority minority district the reflective representation it deserves. So if you get elected in November to represent the 7th Congressional District, chances are Democrats probably had a pretty good night, including likely taking back the White House and possibly even the Senate. So you would go to Washington to govern, presumably. In your view, what should be the top priority for the next Congress? It should be health care. About 135,000 people in my district don't have health care. And that's nearly a quarter of folks in my district who wake up in the morning and don't have the ability to go see a doctor. And I believe that healthcare is a human right. Uh, no one should be denied healthcare because they're too poor to access it. Uh, that's why I'm actually an advocate for Medicare for all. Um, this issue is especially important to me because of my own mother uh, who worked herself to the bone as an order puller at a warehouse. Uh, and because of her wages, because her wages were so low, my mother worked longer hours. You know, her job was to pack up boxes and put them on trucks. And uh, she suffered from two herniated discs in her back. Uh, and her, her injury meant she was unable to continue her job. And her workers' comp originally covered her injury. But when she lost her job, we ended up going through her unemployment insurance. And they decided, post her second procedure, that they were not going to cover the cost. They stopped paying my mother her benefits, and she was forced to pay out of pocket. And, you know, what would any human pay for their health? And the answer is everything and anything. And so now thousands of dollars in debt, you know, we were left in no option but to sue her unemployment, unemployment insurance company. And so at the time, I, I remember, you know, I found my mom an attorney. We fought back. I was on every call. We went, went to every meeting, and eventually we won. 
Nobody should ever have to go through something like that, though. Uh, we have an opportunity to make things right. And when in Congress, I'm going to make sure that everyone in this country has the access to health care. So for people who have paid attention to this conversation about Medicare for all, um, particularly in the uh, Democratic race for president, I think we're starting to learn that the definition of Medicare for all seems to be a little bit of a moving target. So just to, to clarify here, if you were elected to the House, would you like to see the chamber pursue legislation that prohibits private companies from selling health insurance in most circumstances? Or do you envision a healthcare system that still has a role for private insurance, but somehow meets this definition of Medicare for all? Yeah. So in a universal healthcare system, there's going to be opportunities for private insurance companies to subcontract through the Medicare program uh, and have the ability to offer uh, supplementary healthcare coverage. Um, you know, I'm a fighter for universal healthcare. I would say that we already have many public goods. We have our police officers, our firefighters, our roads and highways and our public education system. Uh, I believe healthcare should fall into that same category. So let's stick with healthcare for a moment here. What is your view of House Bill 481, a bill passed in the state legislature this year that would ban abortions at six weeks? It's a tragedy. This new abortion law in Georgia criminalizes abortion after six weeks when many women don't even know that they're pregnant. Uh, women now have to worry about their freedom should they have a miscarriage. You know, and a women's health decisions should be left between a woman and her doctor. And so I'm staunchly pro-choice. It's time that the GOP's hypocritical stance of limited government, uh, unless it's between a woman's leg and... Yeah, as we've discussed on this show, this is a, a state issue, but there there is federal policy that matters here. Um, would you like to see the policy that blocks federal Medicaid funding for abortion services? This is a policy known as the Hyde Amendment. Would you like to see that policy repealed in Congress? Absolutely. Uh, I would absolutely repeal the Hyde Amendment. I, I believe this amendment hurts minority and low-income women the most, and so I'd be a strong advocate in repealing it. So turning to immigration for a moment here, so Gwinnett Sheriff Butch Conway recently announced an extension of the county's 287G program. This is a program in which local governments voluntarily assist with the enforcement of federal immigration law, and the program cost Gwinnett County nearly $10 million between 2009 and 2016. So what is your view of this program and the sheriff's decision to at least temporarily extend it, but it appears from the reporting he temporarily extended it with an eye towards a longer-term extension next year? Sure. Uh, well, uh, 25% of this district is immigrants. And like you said, the sheriff just extended uh, his offices to agree with ICE to continue to participate in this program. I think it's awful. I think it makes our communities less safe. You know, Gwinnett County has the highest rate of deportations in the state of Georgia, twice the amount of the next county. And like you mentioned, we've already wasted $10 million in unrecouped costs of local taxpayer money for this program. So I think it's, it's a real travesty. And the, it's to expand on immigration, because this is a very important issue to me as the daughter of working class immigrants from Bangladesh, a story I'd like to share is uh, last year, I went down to the migrant caravan at the border. And I wish you could have seen what I saw. There were hundreds of people living in tents, sleeping on the ground, waiting for their number to be called. And I was fortunate enough to help three families and put them up in a motel, you know, get them some food and medicine. Uh, and so seeking asylum is a human right, and these families were running from terror. And instead of showing compassion, our president has decided to vilify these people during their time of need. So I, I, I would like to uh, mention my immigration platform, which I've already made public, 
but there, it's just a set of four simple promises that will guide our fight for more fair immigration systems. And so the first one would be, I'm going to be a fighter to make to ensure a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants currently residing in this country. Uh, two, I will fight to reinstate and strengthen DACA, DAPA, and TPS orders immediately uh, and work to overturn the asylee and Muslim ban. And three, I will fight to stop deporting immigrants who've been in our country for decades without incident and instead focus on resettlement programs that have proven to make communities flourish economically and culturally. And number four, I will certainly fight to block ICE's ability to hijack local taxpayer money, which forces local law enforcement to do its bidding and vote for a ban on, on a 287G program. Turning here uh, to climate change, um, projections for the impact of climate change on the U.S. have become even more dire in recent months, with a recent report estimating that the effects of climate change could cost $54 trillion in damage in the long run. In your view, what should the federal government do about climate change? So we're experiencing a climate crisis, and we're going to need bold ideas to combat it. Uh, the Green New Deal has a lot of great principles in it. Uh, I'm on board with the principles of creating economic equity and creating jobs. You know, the state of Georgia has the capacity to be leader in harnessing natural energy. Uh, Georgia is actually one of the top states in the country to receive sunshine. And I'd be on board with a plan that could potentially make the state a leading force in the new clean energy economy. Another piece of this, um, in terms of the the approach that Congress can take, is is the issue of transit. And earlier this year, Gwinnett County rejected a proposal to join MARTA. County leaders have since begun reassessing how they would build support for another re- referendum. But late in the last state legislative session, state legislators briefly considered prohibiting the county from taking up the MARTA question again. So how do you view your role as a member of Congress in building support locally for transit? Or would you view the vote in March as the end of discussion for Gwinnett? Oh, no, we're continuing this discussion. Uh, look, we have to invest in our crumbling infrastructure and transportation. That MARTA referendum that we just had failed because it was never set up to succeed. You know, voting is already difficult for working class families and putting an election on an obscure day is a form of voter suppression. We need to return federal dollars back to our transportation system. And I'll make sure I do that as, a, as the next congresswoman for this district. Uh, expand our highways to clear congestion, include bus lanes to reduce the amount of cars on the road, and extend our rails. And, and I, we just talked about climate change. I know the GOP treats the phrase climate change like the word Voldemort, but more, co- but more cars equal more emissions. And this is terrible on our environment. A word they do recognize is economics. And by not investing in transportation, they're keeping good paying jobs from this district. So we absolutely need to invest in transit. So turning to another issue here that, that also kind of deals with economic security and, and what the minimum wage should be, um, there's been a debate in Congress among Democrats, particularly in the House, since they've taken it over, about passing a federal minimum wage law and what the level of the minimum wage should be. Um, so in your view, uh, what would you would you like to see the federal minimum wage increase? And if so, to what level? Yes, I would love to see the uh, minimum wage increase. And, and that starts at $15. Um, but it's not only about raising the minimum wage. It's about creating an economy for everyone. It's about economic equity. And, you know, to, for me, I'm just going to expand here. For too long, you know, our government has favored large corporate interests. It's small businesses and our working class are the backbone of this country and this district. 
And I think it's time we end corporate welfare and stop giving tax breaks to the ultra wealthy. We have to raise our minimum wage to a livable wage starting at $15. And it's the fastest way that we can end wealth inequality for women, especially women of color and minorities in general. And restoring the strength for our unions and union members is key to economic equity. You know, wealth inequality was at its lowest when our unions were at their strongest. And so I, I'm, a, I'm a strong advocate in, in increasing the uh, minimum wage to livable wage. And an article actually I, I just read uh, showed that this district has a lot of unmet housing needs. You know, a recent study done on extended stays in Gwinnett showed that 10% of Norcross residents who have turned extended stays into permanent residencies because of unmet housing needs or cost burden renting which by definition is any housing that consumes over 30% of your income. 10% is a very big number. And, you know, we need to make sure that our small businesses have access to capital and divert the subsidies going to large corporations to our small businesses so that they can afford to pay their employees competitive wages. You know, last time I checked, employees that make a living wage tend to be happier. They stick around and they work hard. And it's also going to mean investing in infrastructure and in transportation so we can bring good jobs to our district and reduce the traffic that we currently have. It's already a nightmare and a strain and a stress on our residents and to our environment right now. A lot of these, this basket of issues between Medicare for all, a $15 minimum wage, a lot of this conversation around corporate power in our politics, this, at least in, in my view, just as, a, as an observer, has been a message really driven by a rising um, group within the Democratic Party that ranges from uh, maybe the most bold progressives to the Democratic Socialists. Um, you're actually the first uh, candidate, Democratic candidate for office that I've talked to who supports Medicare for All. Do you? How do you see yourself sort of ideologically within the primary or, or is ideology itself an, an important um, issue to you? Sure. Uh, look, I'm a Democrat and I am running on the most progressive platform in the primary. And I think people in this district and actually around the country are tired of Republican light messaging, you know, and candidates watering down who they are. When Republicans go to the voting booth, you know, they're going to vote for the real Republican, not the fake Republican. And we should all recognize that we live in a mixed economy. And, and, and I'm going to be a fighter for universal health care. And I would say that we already have many public goods. As I mentioned, our police officers, our firefighters, our roads and highways, and our public education. I believe health care should fall into that same category as well. Sort of building off of that, you're you're in this Democratic primary with Carolyn Bordeaux. She won the Democratic primary last time around, and she nearly beat the sitting congressman, Republican Rob Woodall, in the 2018 election. Um, when she entered this race, I think among the press and among political observers, she was viewed as maybe starting out as the front runner in this race, given her performance last cycle. So how do you approach this primary and in this challenge to uh, Carolyn Bordeaux in this race? So many outlets are already calling this race a, a two-person horse race between me and, and her as well. Um, you know, I raised six figures in my first quarter, more than double the combined amount of two of my primary opponents. 30% of the funds I raised came in the form of small dollar contributions. I believe this, I believe this shows that 
People are hungry to elect a leader who is authentic and unapologetic with an inspiring message. You know, Democrats often say that messaging and primaries are the same, but that is not true. You know, I'm running as a bold progressive. I'm running as a bold progressive candidate, and you know, this is not a campaign; it's a movement, and we're we're here trying to return power to the people by speaking truth to power. And I'm going to continue to be a champion for the middle and working class. I know my message is already inspiring people. You know, I get messages on you know, Facebook and Twitter from within the district from people who are so thankful that someone is finally speaking up. And just like Leah Abrams did, uh, she flipped this district last year, and I intend to do the same in 2020. To get back to a little bit of policy here as we as we come towards the end, um, Senator Cory Booker recently introduced the Marijuana Justice Act that would reschedule and legalize marijuana at the federal level. And he's got several co-sponsors who are also running for president. Um, so this, you know, if, if Democrats do well in the 2020 elections, it's certainly possible that this issue becomes one that comes before the Congress. Um, so would you support marijuana legalization at the federal level or legislation allowing states to decide on their own? I would support legalization at the federal level. The, cur- the system currently disproportionately affects communities of color. Uh, marijuana is consumed at the same rate between minority and non-minority communities. However, the incarceration rate for black and brown people is more than double. And I think it's high time that we deschedule cannabis at the federal level uh, and expunge all nonviolent criminal possession records and restore the rights uh, and their rights to citizens and make sure the victims of the war on, dr- war on drugs get justice. But, you know, in addition to the criminal justice aspects of descheduling cannabis, there's also a tremendous economic upside by creating a new industry. The states that have already legalized cannabis are experiencing billions of dollars in new tax income. And so this industry at a national level is estimated to be in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, which we could use to pay for things like healthcare and debt-free college. And then one more question here, her turning to some news from the Congress this week. Um, so this week, special counsel Robert Mueller held a surprise press conference and said, quote, if we had confidence that the president did not clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so, referring to the investigation and the report that came out. Uh, but he also discussed a Justice Department policy that prevents the indictment of a sitting president. Um, what mm-hmm. was your reaction to his statement this week? And if you were in the House today, how would you approach this question of uh, either the impeachment of President Trump or um, this general oversight question of the president and his administration? You know, like you said, he said if they had confidence the president clearly did not crime, commit a crime, they would have said so. And his statement, coupled with Trump administration's complete disregard for Congress, subpoenas, and the rule of law, it makes it clear he has something to hide. You know, Mueller closed by saying that there were multiple systemic efforts to interfere in our election, and that allegation deserves the attention of every American. And I believe that it's time for Congress to do its job and get to the bottom of it. The American people deserve to know what he's hiding. He's done everything in his power to stop this investigation, including firing an FBI director. And I encourage the rest of the candidates in the Democratic primary in Georgia 7 to join me in calling for impeachment proceedings to begin immediately. Um, And uh, just to wrap wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to add to this conversation or, or anything that we missed today? You know, to to reiterate, you know, why I'm running, you know, I'm running for Congress because we deserve a representative 
in Washington who can tell our story, you know, a representative who knows firsthand what it means to work low-wage jobs, who knows the burden of oppressive medical bills, who knows that we need to invest in things like public education because it changed the trajectory of her life, and a representative who's ready to give this community the voice it deserves. All right. Well, Nabila, if people would like to learn more about your campaign, how could they do that? Uh, they can go to www.nabilaforcongress.com. Um, my Facebook page is Nabila for Congress. My Twitter is Nabila for GA07. And my Instagram is also Nabila for Georgia07. And I encourage anyone listening to this uh, to, to join the movement and join the campaign. We'd love to have them. All right. Well, Nabila, thank you so much for joining the podcast and good luck on the trail. Thank you so much, Kyle. Thank you to Nabila for joining the podcast. Now let's turn this over to my discussion with Matthew Cavadon. He's a defense attorney from Gainesville. Uh, So Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. So on today's show, we are uh, continuing this discussion on the legal implications at play here with House Bill 481, the six-week abortion ban that was passed during this last legislative session and signed by the governor. It is scheduled to take effect January 1st of 2020. And so we wanted to talk to Matthew about his views of the bill. And uh, Matthew wrote in an All on Georgia column that House Bill 481 does not put women who have abortions in prosecutors' crosshairs. So Matthew, can you lay out your argument for why that is? Certainly. I think a lot of the commentary so far that's come out on the bill is lacking the big picture of both the criminal law as a whole and the deep picture of the history of the criminal law in Georgia. Let me say this. My angle on this is a very specific angle. I am not getting into the details as to whether this was a well-written bill. I am not getting into the weeds of whether there is a prosecutor in Georgia who might, in some world, try to charge this. My angle is to pick up on what Senator Jen Jordan said in a recent interview with you guys, which is that a prosecution of a woman seeking an abortion under this bill may not be successful. That's the point that I want to zoom in on. As a criminal defense lawyer, I know that prosecutors can do things that are legally incorrect sometimes. I've seen that plenty of times in four years of practice as a lawyer. My job is not to make predictions about whether some prosecutor in Georgia might try to charge this. My point, though, is that prosecutorial error or misinterpretation of the law is not the same as prosecutorial discretion, and that as a lawyer reading the law, the new abortion law does not change the status quo for women who have abortions in Georgia. They will not be subject to criminal sanctions. So my argument in a nutshell focuses on a couple of things. Number one, and there's there's really three rules of interpreting statutes that come into play here. Number one, you don't expect significant changes in the law from sideways changes in the law. That's a point that the U.S. Supreme Court has made. That's certainly true under Georgia law. Justice Scalia put it, legislatures don't hide elephants in mouse holes. And what that means is you don't look to sideways or out-of-the-way provisions of the law in general for how to change your interpretation of specific statutes. Another way of putting it is that specific laws govern over general laws. You can't get a much more fundamental change in the law than expanding who could be eligible for, say, a murder prosecution. 
And in fact, it'd be a huge historical change as well. Georgia now has 85 years of murder precedent saying that independent circulation and live birth is required in order to charge somebody with murder. As far as the abortion law goes, there's been 143 years of abortion precedent based on what is now the plain text of the statute, which requires a third party. The abortion statute only criminally punishes somebody who administers an abortifacient to any woman or uses an instrument upon some woman in order to create an abortion. The courts have held that that clearly does not mean that a woman can be subject to prosecution for her own abortion. Now, these are long-settled judicial interpretations, especially under the abortion statute. It's rooted very clearly in the plain text of the act. Changes to long-settled judicial interpretations of statutes need clear legislative intent. You couldn't have had a much clearer opportunity for the Georgia General Assembly to change the murder or abortion statute than you did with the most recent bill. They declined to change those statutes themselves. Nothing in the new bill amends any other language there. Nothing in the bill expresses displeasure at how the courts have interpreted those provisions. All of that, even by itself, should be enough to say that the longstanding interpretations are not going anywhere. You can then look at other criminal laws that could govern the conduct that's covered by the murder statute and the abortion statute as applied to abortions. For example, Georgia has a specific statute on assault of an unborn child. That statute exempts women who have abortions. The battery on an unborn child statute, same thing. There's a specific statute for feticide, which is killing an unborn child in Georgia. That law also exempts women who have abortions. For the courts to look at that lay of the law and say, well, all right, maybe all of these other even more specific statutes, statutes that were specifically enacted with pregnancy in mind, don't apply to women. But you know what does? The murder statute. Let's go ahead and open the door for death penalty prosecutions. No way. So you addressed an argument made by Andrew Fleischman that changing the definition of natural person to include unborn children opens up the possibility that women could be charged under the murder statute for causing the death of another human being. So can you explain the legal principle here that you discussed in your All on Georgia piece that relates to this point? Certainly. It requires paying very close attention to the structure of the Georgia Code as a whole and to the language used in the different statutes. What I'm not sure everybody is clear on and I know that, of course, Senator Jordan and Mr. Fleischman are, but I don't know if casual observers are aware. The personhood statute is the second or third statute in the entire Georgia Code, which contains thousands and thousands of different laws. It is a global statement of who can be a person for any purpose under Georgia law, not necessarily for every purpose. Indeed, unborn children are now mentioned right alongside corporations or incorporated forms as possible person under the Georgia Code, that does not mean that you then just copy and paste that definition into every place in the Georgia Code that deals with a human being. And in fact, I think it's really, really important to note textually here, the murder statute and the abortion statute do not ban killing persons, not even natural persons. They ban killing human beings. Now, the personhood statute itself does say now that 
any human being could include unborn children. But again, where you have a more specific interpretation on point from the courts for the murder statute or the abortion statute, when you have compelling reasons culturally, historically, politically, to continue to interpret those statutes in another way, the global level change in the personhood statute is not going to reach down all the way to the criminal laws. It's a huge symbolic act, no doubt about it. It is the adoption of a very particular vision of human rights and human dignity. But again, elephants and mouse holes here. You're not going to work a change in homicide laws based on a sideways provision in the most general of all levels of the Georgia Code here. That's just not how statutes change. So what do you make of the split in opinions between different district attorneys as reported by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this week? So one, uh, Douglas County District Attorney Ryan Leonard, he seemed to take up the argument that Fleischman laid out. Uh, He told the AJC, quote, based on my review, the only crime it could fall under is murder. Nothing else criminalizes this conduct. The only way to be 100% sure you're not prosecuted under prosecuted under it is not to have an abortion. Other DAs said they wouldn't prosecute women, and some even went as far to say as they would not prosecute providers under the law, while some others were still willing not were not willing to lay out an opinion at this point. So what do you make of this split? Is this a common uh, thing among district attorneys across a state as big as ours? Well, we've got several dozen different district attorneys in the state. You've seen several who've come out and said that they agree with my take on it, which is that they simply can't prosecute women under the current state of the law. Again, I think that's the correct view of the law, and I would hope that further research and deliberation by prosecution offices would lead them to the same conclusion. Uh, That said, obviously, in any state where you have this many different district attorneys, this many lawyers who frankly, do disagree somewhat on exactly where to put the emphasis, whether it's on statutory interpretation or on, I guess, just picking the new legislation in a vacuum, uh, you're going to see some disagreement, no doubt about it. Now, I understand the fear that a lot of people have of what happens if there's a test case. What happens if, come January 1, Douglas County or somewhere else's district attorney goes ahead and charges a woman for murder under this statute? I think it's important, practically speaking, to bear in mind, first off, there are going to be injunctions on this virtually immediately. Everybody from the Georgia legislature to the Alabama legislature to the people sponsoring this bill have recognized that what they're trying to do is get a vehicle set up for a U.S. Supreme Court challenge. It's going to take possibly several years for everything to shake out as far as whether the U.S. Supreme Court even decides to take the case. If it does not, Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood are almost certainly going to lead to injunctions against the bill as a whole, criminally, civilly, you name it. So I don't think it's that we're about to see an actual test case emerge. Now, if we get to the point where two years down the road, the U.S. Supreme Court has taken this case, decided that Georgia law is constitutional, reverses Roe and Casey, or distinguishes them, something like that, could we then be looking at some sort of a situation Potentially so. I mean, I guess the point at that point would be we'd have had a lot more conversation, a lot more time for research, a lot more commentary out there. You might have even had guidance from the attorney general's office. You could well have had elections by that point for new district attorney's offices where this was going to become a political issue as well. I think the likelihood of actually having some sort of a quick out-through-the-doors criminal prosecution attempted under this is slim to none. I could be 
I could be wrong about that, but again, just looking at the whole context that we're dealing with here, I, I think that's highly unlikely. Now, if one were to emerge, I know one of the questions that a lot of folks have had is what would be the procedures then for a challenge? Would you have to wait for a trial and an appeal, all those things? First things first, as with any time where there's a question of statutory interpretation, or frankly, where district attorney's offices just make mistakes and mischarge something, there are the opportunity to file pretrial motions on that. There's a vehicle called the demur, where you can say that the activity that's being charged is either not covered by a statute or can't be constitutionally prosecuted. That would go before a superior court judge to decide whether or not the prosecution could continue. Even if the superior court judge decided that, there's a procedure for interlocutory appeals, basically appeals before you even get to a trial of a decision like that, where somebody could take it immediately to Atlanta, ask the Georgia Court of Appeals, possibly even the Georgia Supreme Court to immediately weigh in and decide, and then if not, to appeal immediately to the U.S. Supreme Court and ask for an immediate decision on that. So there are vehicles to challenge something long before you know, two years deep into a prosecution after a jury trial is already concluded or something along those lines. And is that, are those vehicles generally accessible regardless of who the defense attorney might be? I'm just thinking of the the likelihood, and I'm not a lawyer, so I may be speaking out of turn here, but the likelihood uh, to me seems that it could be a, a, a low-income or disadvantaged woman that could be the subject of a test case in this situation. So, would this be, is there any difference in access to these legal remedies, whether you're working with just a public defender provided by the court or a, uh, you know, higher priced, higher skilled, potentially defense attorney? Does that play at all in this situation? I wouldn't think so. I mean, obviously, if you have a total butt of a lawyer who somehow is not aware that there's legal controversy around abortion, then I guess they could miss it. Um, I mean, that that would be almost that would be almost outrageous to think that somebody at this point in the game wouldn't be aware. No, I mean, a demurrer is a vehicle that anybody can file. Uh, public defender's offices are more than familiar with them. There are often times where defense attorneys disagree with prosecutors about the scope of a criminal statute or about the constitutionality of one. That, that's very common. These are things that any attorney who's been practicing for any amount of time in the criminal realm will be more than familiar with. Interlocutory appeals are also frequent. They're used all the time for non-constitutional issues, or I should rather, I should say, legal issues that uh, the law is very clear on. Search and seizures can be appealed interlocutory, where the courts are asked in Atlanta to decide an appeal before the trial. Any criminal defense attorney is going to be very familiar with how to do that. It's a procedure that's used very often. So, no, public defender, private attorney, anything of that sort. I mean, any criminal defense attorney worth their salt should be more than familiar with the vehicles that are out there for challenging decisions before trial. And uh, just to wrap up here, you wrote in your piece that you oppose criminal penalties for women who have abortions. Why do you oppose those penalties? I think the criminal law is the ultimate sanction that our society offers. It's put out there for usually for voluntary, for knowing conduct, for flagrantly flaunting those norms that the legislature has recognized to be important ones for our public life together. At this point in history, at this point culturally, at this point legally, given the U.S. Supreme Court rulings on point, 
it's simply just not fair to expect women to uh, to face criminal charges for having an abortion. I mean, is that absolutely true in every time, in every place, in every imaginable case? Not necessarily, but again, given the past half century of the United States, given the much longer precedent in Georgia, frankly, given the fact that women are who choose to have abortions are often in incredibly difficult circumstances, or frankly, they need help. A lot of folks who oppose abortion in general, as I do, think that the appropriate social response to that is to provide assistance through civil society, through government, through other entities to get out there and provide for assistance with health care, with mental health care, with counseling, with life skills, with monetary support, with all the things that we need to make sure that both women and their children are well provided for and to make sure that the other processes that are out there for women who can't keep their kids as far as fostering, as far as the family health side of things and the family law side of things, that those are well provided for. I'm not eager to see women who are facing some of the most difficult circumstances in their lives face the added difficulty of jail. Um, I, I think the better response for us as a society at this point is to respond with care and assistance and certainly to try to limit abortion, but to do that in a way that recognizes the just the plain facts in our society and our culture and where people are coming from at this point. And and to wrap up here, is there anything else you think that's worth adding to this discussion, particularly now that this debate has played out publicly for the last couple of weeks among the press and lawmakers? I do think one other angle that you didn't ask me about, but that has come up a couple of times, including by Senator Jordan, is the angle of the affirmative defense included in the bill. Mm-hmm that there is now an affirmative defense to the crime of abortion if a woman reasonably believes that her life was in danger, and that's why she sought an abortion. Uh, Some folks, including Senator Jordan, have said that this means that obviously women are contemplated as possibly subject to criminal charges under the bill. But I think it's important to look again at legal context there. An affirmative defense is always an affirmative defense to some crime. The crime of unlawful abortion, again, from its plain text, it requires that somebody either provide an abortifacient to a woman or perform a procedure on a woman. The Georgia Court of Appeals has said plain language alone means that that requires some third party, that it's not meant to cover women who have abortions. That's backed up by 143 years of legal practice in Georgia, going all the way back to the very first criminal abortion statute in Georgia in the 1800s. It's a bit of an odd thing to include the affirmative defense as it's written. My best guess is that might be language from another state's bill or from a model bill put together by a non-Georgia legislator. Looking at the bill as a whole, I'm quite convinced that the affirmative defense is not meant to open the door or to provide a back door for prosecuting women for their own abortions. Rather, I believe that what that defense stands for is the proposition that abortion providers who give an abortion in response to a woman showing up, perhaps in an emergency situation, and believing that her life is in danger, and then carrying out an abortion. I think that's what it's meant to shield, is to cover abortion providers. Not to say that, well, women can now generally be prosecuted for having abortions, but if they truly believe their life was in danger, they can't be. Rather, I think it's aimed at the providers. Another tool that I think is important for looking at affirmative defense is the affirmative defense that we're talking about here is number five on a list of five different affirmative defenses. 
the other four all very clearly apply to providers of abortion, not to women who have abortion. Looking to another tool of how to interpret statutes, how lawyers and courts interpret statutes, when you have a list of things, they're read together in light of each other. Where the other four exemptions really do apply only to abortion providers, again, I think it stands to reason that the fifth one does also. So I do think that's important to bear notice as well. Uh, otherwise, I think that's most of it. Uh, in conclusion, all I would say is if the homicide laws of this state are going to change, they're going to know about it. There's not going to be any surprises. There's not going to be any sort of subtle interpretations arising off of other statutes and how they might interact. The law loves clarity. The criminal law especially so. Rule of lenity even says that if different crimes may or may not apply to conduct, you always favor the defendants on something like that. All of that over and over and over again points toward you're not going to see a massive sea change in criminal liability based on anything but for a clear-as-day command from the legislature that this is how the criminal law is going to be now. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you for a very enlightening discussion of all the legal issues at play here, and thanks for joining the podcast. Certainly. Thanks for having me on. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.